Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As prices keep creeping up, your entertainment budget doesn't have to take a hit. Live One Plus has all the music you love, ad-free for only $3.99 per month. Dive into Live One's massive library of songs, listen to curated playlists, or create your own. Check out exclusive artist-hosted stations and do it all for the best price in streaming. Lock in a Live One Plus membership for just $3.99 per month now, and you'll not only beat inflation, you'll get all your favorite music ad-free. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy, and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22, or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. Los Angeles in the 1980s is responsible for a lot of culture all over the world that's still visible today. Hard rock band Guns N' Roses was breaking records with their debut album, Appetite for Destruction, and N.W.A. was blowing minds with their explosive form of hip-hop and rap. In 1987, Platoon was cleaning up the Academy Awards, and later that same year, Southern California was rocked by a 6.1 magnitude earthquake, causing six deaths, hundreds of injuries, and an estimated $100 million in damage. This is also when Robert Piernock decided that he needed to get rid of his wife and daughter so that he wouldn't have to pay out a bunch of money during a divorce settlement. He came up with a plan to make it look like they died in a drunk driving accident. Or did he? This is Monsters. Robert Piernock was born on January 1, 1937, in Tarzana, California. He met Claire Lawrence at a pool party in 1965 after she had immigrated to Hollywood from Quebec, Canada. After a two-year courtship, the couple were married on April 16, 1967. Robert worked as a computer technician for the Network Electronics Corporation and eventually worked his way up to vice president of the company. His specialty was to solve problems with the circuitry that controlled explosives. As a leader at the company, he supervised the testing of sophisticated electronic detonators for pyrotechnic devices. He became one of the most skilled experts in his field. After two years of marriage, Robert and Claire had their first child in June of 1969, a daughter named Natasha. In 1977, they had another daughter, but there isn't any information about her publicly available. In the early 70s, Robert became an inspector for the Department of Water Resources, but he claims as soon as he started, he was told during training that he was actually expected to sign off on inferior work by contractors who built water control systems. 
he was supposed to later request that the mistakes be corrected through change orders. This would allow the contractors to get paid for the project and then get paid again for correcting the mistakes that should have been caught by the inspector. Robert was not going to start passing projects that were not up to code, so he did his job as he was supposed to and he claimed that he got numerous threats. He said he went to his supervisor that admitted that the fraud was common practice but told him he was more than welcome to make the contractors meet code specifications. When the contractors he oversaw began submitting proper quality work, his co-workers began a campaign of harassment that was meant to drive him out of his position. Supposedly his record was too clean and the DWR wasn't able to fire him. They were hoping to get him to quit so they could go back to their normal operating procedure of corruption. It turned out that Robert was far too stubborn for that. According to Robert, he was stripped of his authority and the contractors were told to ignore him. He said that supervisors from Sacramento flew down and told him to stop making waves. He claimed that he began getting threatening phone calls at home, his brake lines were cut, and the department paid contractors to submit letters of complaint against him. These things didn't stop Robert from writing to state politicians, and even though he said he kept his letters anonymous, his supervisors still knew it was him. After years of battling, one of California's biggest water pumping plants had a major overflow. Robert used the event as proof that his claims about the DWR were true. Obviously, inferior parts for the pump had passed inspection and led to an overflow that cost the taxpayers millions of dollars. Employees of the DWR suggested that Robert had sabotaged the parts to cause the flood. Eventually, an oversight audit of the DWR was done and it found that the state contract procedures were not being properly implemented. Like most bureaucratic processes, though, after the audit caught shortcomings in the inspection process, nothing was done about it. Next, Robert formed a union and was elected shop steward. He tried to use the union to make changes at the DWR, but soon after he was in a car accident that he claimed was more retaliation. A car had run a stop sign and hit Robert as he was passing by. Robert was knocked unconscious, and by the time he had come to, the offending driver had fled on foot. He also claimed to have been robbed while he was unconscious. The driver was never caught, so I guess the car wasn't registered to them? There was no other information about the accident beside that there was an open whiskey bottle in the car that hit him. Soon, Robert was claiming that the police were also involved in the conspiracy against him. He said the police were filing false reports about the accident, which he regarded as, quote-unquote, the attempt on my life. Robert started filing multiple lawsuits in state and federal court. Reports say that he had small pieces of evidence here and there, but he never had enough evidence of the complete scope of the corruption he was claiming to have witnessed. He wanted a federal investigation into this massive conspiracy that he claimed was going on but couldn't really provide proof of. In 1979, Robert lost his temper with a subordinate at work and attacked him. It's reported that he grabbed the man by the neck and when the man tried to get away, Robert punched him in the head. He was charged with misdemeanor battery, and when the new district attorney looked at the case, he offered Robert a deal to drop the charge to disturbing the peace, which would give him probation and a $100 fine. Robert turned the offer down and insisted on a trial. The victim had visible injuries, and multiple people witnessed the crime. Robert tried to provide his own witnesses that could claim it was self-defense, but their testimonies fell apart on the stand. Their stories were inconsistent and didn't match the timeline. Robert was found guilty. So Robert appealed the conviction. He claimed that the charge and the conviction were engineered by the district attorney. Remember when I said that the new district attorney looked at the case? 
That's because District Attorney Myron Jenkins began his position after Robert had been charged with battery. He didn't even know who Robert Piernock was when the charges were filed. This is clearly a sign of Robert's stubbornness and his refusal to ever admit when he's wrong. Now, do I think there was zero corruption going on at this state-run department that handles private contractors? No. It almost seems like corruption is required at places like that, but what Robert was saying was most likely not happening. This is one of those instances that makes my common sense meter light up. Robert claimed that the Department of Water Resources was participating in corrupt activity which was bilking the taxpayers. Okay, that's likely. Then his co-workers and supervisors got involved. Not unbelievable. Then his co-workers are trying to kill him and the police are filing false reports about him. Probably not, but I'll try to keep an open mind. Then the Los Angeles County District Attorney's engineering charges and convictions against him. That's just not happening. Especially since there were quite a few people who witnessed the assault Robert was charged with. Those charges were not engineered. During Robert's appeal, he also claimed that he needed a new trial because he wasn't allowed to bring up all of his grievances about the DWR at his trial. The appellate judges informed him that, whether true or not, his grievances had nothing to do with the case he was being tried for. Obviously, his appeal was denied. This loss only made Robert more obsessed with proving his corruption claims were true, except he never really proved anything. He wrote letters and filed countless complaints and lawsuits. He was just bombarding the system and getting small wins out of sheer numbers. He would get supervisors to agree to small changes here and there, so he believed his campaign was working. During this time, Robert's focus became solely about fighting the corruption that was happening at the DWR and the conspiracy they had directed at him. When Robert began fighting this cause, Claire believed what Robert had said and supported him. Over time, though, she began to see that it had just become an obsession and that it was negatively affecting his relationship with his family. Robert began lashing out at Claire and Natasha was witnessing the violence. Robert eventually began to focus on nothing but his fight against corruption. He was filing so many lawsuits that he hired a lawyer to handle them. He would win settlements and then put that money away to use to file more lawsuits. He was making recordings of coworkers and keeping detailed notes. He became angrier and angrier that people didn't appreciate the work he was doing to save the taxpayers from so much corruption. He eventually secured a disability pension for a back injury that he claimed was from coworkers deliberately causing heavy equipment to fall on him. This was of course part of the conspiracy to stop him from fighting against the DWR corruption. Now he had an income that allowed him to fight full time. Over time, Robert actually got enough money through lawsuit settlements that he was able to put over $250,000 in various bank accounts, he had nearly paid off his house, and had purchased a few other houses as income properties. I can't help but wonder why he was keeping all of this money. He claimed that he was filing lawsuits, fighting corruption in an attempt to save taxpayer money, to the point that he was disappointed by the lack of appreciation over it. So when he won a lawsuit and got a settlement, why did he think he should keep the money? I understand recouping expenses, but shouldn't the rest of that money go back to the taxpayers that were allegedly screwed by the corruption? Filing countless lawsuits under the guise of fighting for taxpayers and then keeping all of the money you win kind of makes it seem like you're not really any better than the organizations you claim are corrupt. Just saying. Robert wanted Claire to be in the fight with him, but she was over it. She was no longer interested in his campaign and he felt betrayed by her. 
his violence against Claire increased and eventually carried over to Natasha. Now a teenager, Natasha had seen the way Robert treated her mother and thought that he was evil. In May of 1983, Robert and Claire got into a fight, and when Robert grabbed Claire, Natasha stepped between them and yelled at him to stop. Robert threw her across the room into the kitchen wall, breaking her collarbone. As he drove her to the hospital, he told her repeatedly to tell doctors that she had slipped while playing in the house. Claire went along with the story out of fear, and Natasha, unsure of what to do, told different stories to everyone at the hospital, hoping someone would notice, but nobody did. Claire had talked about leaving Robert after this, but friends said that she had told them that Robert had threatened to kill her if she ever left. Claire believed him and abandoned her plan, but the relationship was clearly beyond saving. Eventually, Robert accepted this and the couple separated. Not long after the separation, Robert met a woman named Sonia Siegel, and soon the two were dating. Robert eventually moved in with Sonia, which gave the family a bit of peace. Natasha said she finally felt safe at home after years of being afraid of her father's violent outbursts. Claire found a job as a secretary at a property management company, and the three girls settled in for a new life together. Robert would visit Claire and his daughters weekly, giving them extra money to help with the bills. As prices keep creeping up, your entertainment budget doesn't have to take a hit. Live One Plus has all the music you love, ad-free for only $3.99 per month. Dive into Live One's massive library of songs, listen to curated playlists, or create your own. Check out exclusive artist-hosted stations and do it all for the best price in streaming. Lock in a Live One Plus membership for just $3.99 per month now, and you'll not only beat inflation, you'll get all your favorite music ad-free. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy, and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22, or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. While there, he would tell Claire about whatever battle he was dealing with in his pursuit to end state corruption, and he wanted her support, but she had none to give him. Robert began expressing concern that Claire's employer was involved in the whole corruption conspiracy and that they may have paid her for her cooperation. Now, according to Robert, both Claire and her employer were working against him. At this point, this has nothing to do with actual corruption. Robert was just off his rocker. This may be the reason Claire finally filed for divorce in early November of 1986, but nobody really knows for sure. She had an initial consultation with a lawyer named Victoria Doom. No, really. And a few days later, she returned the paperwork and paid a retainer to finally initiate a divorce from Robert. On July 21, 1987, Natasha had been dropped off at her house by a friend a little after 5 p.m., Natasha had planned to do some chores before changing her clothes and meeting some friends at Six Flags Magic Mountain, just north of Los Angeles in Valencia. When she arrived home, she was dismayed to see her father's car in the driveway. He actually had two cars at the house, but one was always there. He had a 1971 Cadillac that was always at the house as he normally drove a Datsun F10. Seeing both cars at the house meant that Robert was there and Natasha would have to tiptoe around him. While in the kitchen making a snack, Robert came in and started asking her questions. What were her plans? Did she have any friends coming over? Was her mother working late? Natasha played dumb as she just assumed her father was being nosy, looking for something to criticize her about. But in reality, he was planning his evening. 
He wanted to know if anyone would be stopping by that evening and when Claire would be home because he had a plan to carry out. Suddenly, Robert picked up an electricity bill and started yelling about the cost of the utility bills at the house. He told her that she needed to make sure to turn the TV off when she left the room and reminded her that he still paid most of the bills there. Then he stormed off, going out the back door. When Natasha glanced over at where her father had gone, she noticed that he walked out of the living room, leaving the TV on. When he came back inside, she made a sarcastic remark about someone leaving the TV on. Natasha's defiance angered him, and it gave him the motivation he needed to move on to the next part of his plan. Robert lunged at his daughter and wrapped his hands around her throat. She knew that her words would piss him off. She even expected him to knock her down, but now he was strangling her and she was gasping for any air she could get. He dragged her into the living room and they both fell to the floor. Natasha knew that usually Robert's rage would subside and he would stop his attacks, but this time he continued squeezing her neck for so long she actually thought he might kill her. Suddenly, Robert let go. He asked, quote, Are you okay? End quote. His demeanor changed in an instant. Then he stood up and told Natasha to hold on. He had something that would make her feel better. As Robert went out the front door, Natasha pulled herself together, trying to figure out if she should try to leave the house or if that would only anger the unstable man further. Before she knew it, Robert was back in the house and he had grabbed her arms, twisting them behind her back. He snapped a pair of handcuffs around her wrists before putting a blue canvas bag over her head. He tied a string at the base of the hood to ensure that it wouldn't come off. Natasha knew that her father was an angry and violent man and knew he was capable of killing her and her mother. She flat out asked him, quote, Are you going to kill me? End quote, and her heart sank as he responded, Yes. The canvas bag had two holes in it, one small hole near her mouth and another smaller hole near her nose. Robert took a plastic tube and pushed it through the hole, forcing it to the back of her mouth, near her throat. Natasha had to use all of her concentration just to be able to keep breathing. Then Robert used a spray bottle to squirt alcohol directly into the tube, which ran straight into Natasha's throat, giving her no choice but to swallow it. He spent the next few minutes squirting alcohol into the tube before pulling her up and forcing her down the hallway, into Claire's room, and onto the bed. He added a few more squirts of alcohol to the tube and then turned on the radio, which was tuned to the classical station. Natasha heard her father open the closet where he rummaged around for something. The next thing she knew, he had put a revolver to her head and pulled the trigger. Click. Then she heard the chamber spin. He pulled the trigger again. Click. There were no bullets in the gun, but Natasha didn't know that. For all she knew, there was one round in the chamber, and her father was playing Russian roulette with her. Robert wouldn't chance actually shooting her, because that wouldn't work with his plan. Robert told Natasha that he would blow her brains out if she didn't cooperate with him. The young woman couldn't answer with words, but she answered by staying still and not showing any resistance. This was apparently the right answer because he pushed her over onto her side and lifted her legs onto the bed. He used a rope to tie her ankles together and then pulled them up to her back and tied the rope around her wrists, essentially hog-tying her. The tube had come out of her mouth in the process, so he put it back down her throat and sprayed a few more pumps of alcohol into it. He told Natasha that he was going to get both her and her mother drunk and have Claire sign some papers. He said that, if they both cooperated, he would be out of their lives forever. After a few more sprays, Robert left the bedroom. Natasha said that everything was quiet. When Robert came back into the room, he removed the tube and the hood, untied the rope from her wrists, and sat her up. 
He then removed the handcuffs, moved her hands around to the front, and re-cuffed her. He gave her a glass of alcohol and told her to drink. She was able to choke down about half of the glass before he gave her two pills to swallow. He had her wash them down with alcohol before putting the hood back over her head and pushing her back onto her side on the bed. Sometime after 8 p.m., one of Natasha's friends stopped by the house to pick her up for their trip to Magic Mountain. When she knocked on the door, she got no answer. She went around the side of the house and knocked on the window to Natasha's bedroom, thinking she might have fallen asleep, but still no answer. She tried the front door again, and after still getting no answer, she considered jimmying the window by the front door open. Since both of Robert's cars were in the driveway, she didn't want to break into the house when he was there. Eventually, she gave up, and with two other friends in the car, she headed north to Valencia. Claire regularly worked overtime at her job. She could use the money and it ensured that, if Robert had been at the house during the day for whatever reason, he would be gone by the time she got home. Her boss left around 6 p.m. and Claire stayed until sometime after 8. It's unclear exactly when she got home and what happened between her and Robert. Natasha lost track of time. She may have fallen asleep or passed out from the alcohol, but when she came to, she realized that the dogs were barking. Their two dogs weren't big barkers, so it was unusual to hear them barking consistently like they were. She could tell that they weren't in the house. They were in the backyard, and they couldn't see the street from there, so they must be barking at the sliding glass door at something happening in the house. She tried to hear if her mother was home, but she couldn't keep her focus. The drugs and alcohol had her slipping in and out of consciousness. Sometime in the early morning hours of the next day, Natasha was picked up and carried to the garage where she was placed in the back seat of the Cadillac. Claire was also in the back seat, but the young woman wasn't aware of that at the time. Robert drove the Cadillac, with his small Datsun car hitched to the back, to San Fernando Road, just southwest of Tuxford Street, right next to I-5. He unhitched the Datsun and crawled under the Cadillac where he tied a piece of rope so it hung under the car near the gas tank. He had bolted an L-shaped piece of steel onto the rear axle that had a sharp point facing towards the gas tank. This was a pyrotechnics trick that made a car burst into flames when it impacted something solid. When the car crashed head-on, the piece of metal would be forced into the tank, puncturing it. The piece of rope would have been set on fire ahead of time, and when the gas poured out of the tank and hit the flame, boom. Robert moved both Claire and Natasha into the front seats of the Cadillac and doused the car and passengers with gasoline. He retrieved a tire iron from the car and beat both of his wife and daughter in the head with it. Believing they were both dead, Robert climbed under the car and lit the rope on fire. He then locked the accelerator open and dropped the car into gear. The plan was for the car to speed down the road, cross Tuxford Street, and slam into the concrete wall on the other side of the street. This would drive the spike into the gas tank, releasing the gas onto the flame and igniting the entire car. Investigators said they found a strip of leather tying Claire's hands to the steering wheel, most likely to make it look like the woman was driving. But she must have slumped to the right, which steered the car off the road, and it impacted a telephone pole on the side of San Fernando Road. Even though the car hit the pole with enough force to knock it over, they hadn't picked up enough speed to cause the piece of metal to puncture the gas tank and eventually the fire on the rope burned out. It's important to note that when the car was dusted for prints, there were none on the steering wheel. Not Claire's, not Robert's, none. Which is unusual since its only purpose really was to be touched by people. Robert must have sped away from the scene as soon as he let the Cadillac go and it's unclear if he knew that his plan had not worked. 
It was about four in the morning when a motorist saw the wrecked car and stopped to see if anyone was hurt. He tried to pull Claire from the car, but she was jammed under the steering wheel. He noticed another woman in the car but saw some smoke and was afraid the car would explode. He ran to a phone to call 911. First responders noticed that the smell of gasoline was much stronger than they normally experienced in car accidents. They noticed puddles of gasoline inside the car and on the victims. They also noticed blood spatter inside the car, but no damage to the car. There was no damage to the windshield or the dash. The injuries to the driver's head didn't seem to have come from the crash. This prompted investigators to be called to the scene to determine if there was a crime. Paramedics also found an opened bottle of whiskey in the Cadillac, an interesting coincidence that matched the detail from Robert's earlier quote-unquote attempt on his life. Claire was pronounced dead on the scene at 4.35 a.m. on July 22, 1987, but Natasha was still alive, and when she was finally extracted from the car, she was rushed to the hospital. When investigators put together all the evidence, the wounds that didn't match, the gasoline poured on the interior and victims, the burned rope tied under the car near the gas tank, and the odd metal spike bolted to the rear axle, they knew they had a crime scene. They noted that, though the entire underside of the car was dirty, the screws that held the metal spike in place were shiny and clean, making it apparent that it had been installed recently. The medical examiner determined that Claire had died of blunt force trauma to the head, and it was not caused by the accident. He explained that Claire must have been completely unconscious when the attack happened, which allowed the attacker to repeatedly hit her in the same place over and over, causing massive damage to her skull and brain. Natasha, on the other hand, was semi-conscious when she was attacked and was turning her head back and forth with each blow. This made each impact hit a different part of her head, spreading the damage out and not causing a life-ending injury. When Natasha woke up at the hospital, she was not in a state to explain what had happened. When police tried to question her the first time, she told them that she had been with her friend and that they were going to Magic Mountain, but she didn't quite have her memory back. She was then rushed off for more surgery. Later, when the lead detective, Steve Fisk, arrived at the hospital, Natasha told him about the fight in the kitchen and what she remembered of the attack, and how her father had tied her up and forced alcohol down her throat. After he sent the Cadillac sailing down the street toward its deadly collision with the concrete wall, Robert waited until the bank opened and attempted to withdraw all his money from that account, $51,929.09. Unfortunately for him, that small branch didn't keep that much cash on hand and gave him a voucher to withdraw the money from a nearby Bank of America. Even though it was a much bigger bank, Robert arrived at Bank of America just before they got a delivery of cash, so they were also not able to give him all of the money. He took $9,000 in cash and deposited the rest in a savings account. He would have to return the next day to withdraw the rest. As prices keep creeping up, your entertainment budget doesn't have to take a hit. Live One Plus has all the music you love, ad-free for only $3.99 per month. Dive into Live One's massive library of songs, listen to curated playlists, or create your own. Check out exclusive artist-hosted stations and do it all for the best price in streaming. Lock in a Live One Plus membership for just $3.99 per month now, and you'll not only beat inflation, you'll get all your favorite music ad-free. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. 
This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22 or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. The following day, police contacted Robert and informed him that his vehicle was involved in an accident and his daughter was injured. This was before Claire had been identified or Detective Fisk had interviewed Natasha. Robert didn't give them any indication that he knew what had happened and offered to come to the station at 9 o'clock that morning. He didn't show up. Records show that at 9.01 a.m., Robert purchased some cheap luggage at a drugstore. He then went to the bank and withdrew $30,000 of what was left, leaving $11,000 in the savings account. He then headed to Los Angeles International Airport and caught a flight to Las Vegas. Over the next few weeks, authorities searched the Piernock house, Sonia's condo, and impounded her car. They interviewed friends and relatives of Claire and received tips on some disturbing behavior by Robert. One friend told Detective Fisk about a car accident that Claire had gotten into where she broke her ankle. She said that Robert was upset, but he seemed more upset that Claire survived the accident than the fact that the accident happened. Another friend said that she overheard Robert tell their younger daughter, quote, wouldn't it be nice if mommy died in a car wreck, end quote. They found his Datsun parked within walking distance of the airport and searched it. Inside, they found a toolbox that contained two guns. One was a chrome automatic pistol, and the other was a black revolver with a wooden handle. Natasha had described him playing Russian roulette with her while she was tied up. They also found a vice, and the teeth of the vice perfectly matched indentations on the piece of metal that was sharpened and used as a spike under the Cadillac. While this was going on, Robert was staying in a hotel in Las Vegas under the name Robert Thomas. He had a consultation with a plastic surgeon and went forward with the operation. He received a facelift, eye surgery, and a chin implant. He made several follow-up visits over the next few weeks as his face healed. On August 19th, while in Las Vegas, Robert bought a gray Mustang convertible. He soon drove out of Las Vegas and headed back to Los Angeles. At the beginning of September, Detective Fisk brought Sonia into an interrogation room and asked her where Robert was. She resisted at first, but he managed to convince her that it would be safer for everyone if they were able to bring him in. On September 5, 1987, Robert was arrested at the Vagabond Motel in Woodland Hills. In his room, they found over $26,000 in cash, a fully packed suitcase, and a book titled The Australia Traveler's Survival Guide. Robert was charged with the murder of Claire and attempted murder of Natasha, along with other charges of kidnapping and torture. Take a wild guess what Robert did. That's right, he completely denied having any involvement and claimed that he was being framed. It was that darn conspiracy to silence him again. Not only had they set up the car wreck, he claimed that the police beat him during the arrest. One of his plastic surgery stitches had torn and they took him to the hospital for treatment. This was reported as the only injury on his body. Robert spent three years hiring and firing lawyers in an attempt to delay his trial. They were, of course, all co-conspirators in the plan to ruin him. He began representing himself and then changed his mind. As his trial was just about to get started in 1991, Robert attempted to fire his lawyer again, this being his sixth. He claimed that this lawyer had been paid off by the judge. 
within the list of grievances that Robert had against his lawyer was that he refused to subpoena witnesses from decades-old union conflicts and that he wouldn't allow Robert to use his bar license to run his own defense. Basically things that any lawyer would refuse to do. The judge denied his request. He told him the trial was starting and he was done letting him cause delays. Before the trial started, Robert tried to hire a hitman to kill Natasha and the lawyer that was working for her filing a wrongful death lawsuit against him. That lawyer was none other than Victoria Doom. A week before the trial, an inmate wore a wire and recorded Robert making arrangements to pay $15,000 to have Victoria and his own daughter murdered. He even suggested going after the district attorney and the lead investigator, too. Robert was arrested in jail and charged with solicitation of murder. Guess what he said? That's right, he claimed the inmate was in on the conspiracy and had been paid to set him up. This was Robert's entire trial defense. Every single person that had any tiny bit of involvement with the crime and his arrest was in on a grand conspiracy to set him up. All because he was trying to stop corruption with the Department of Water Resources. Every cop, the district attorney, any lawyer that worked against him, the judge, a jail inmate, even his daughter, which makes absolutely no sense. His daughter was a victim in the crime, and supposedly someone tried to kill her, which was an attempt to frame him for murder. Why would she now be working with the people who had nearly killed her? Due to years of delays caused by Robert and his paranoid delusions, a new district attorney took over the case not long before it went to trial. Though he reviewed the case thoroughly, he wanted to make sure he hadn't missed anything. Robert was an obsessive note-taker and list-maker. I get it. I make constant lists because I know I'll forget it if I don't write it down. I literally have a six-foot-wide, four-foot-high dry erase board on my wall that I make notes on. The problem with Robert was that he never threw them away. The DA had a box of papers from Robert Stotson that looked like a bunch of junk, but he decided he better check it all. The papers contained shopping lists, banking lists, laundry lists, personal reminders, some with dates, some without. As the DA picked up a single piece of paper, looked at both sides, and set it on the desk, something on one of the lists caught his eye. It was a list with four to-do items on it, and the last one was a drawing of a block capital L with the long end forming a sharp point. It looked exactly like the L-shaped piece of steel that had been bolted to the underside of the Cadillac. Next to the drawing was the word stock. When you purchase a piece of raw steel, it's generally referred to as bar stock. Among the other lists containing mundane chores, one list had the word rope as a to-do item and another list had find lock, L-O-C, most likely meaning find a location to stage the accident. Another list had empty car and by L-I-Q, followed by a small two with a circle around it. Robert didn't drink, so was that two bottles of liquor, the one he used to force down Claire and Natasha's throats, and the one he planted in the Cadillac? The DA knew he was on the right track when he found a list that Robert had clearly made as a to-do list for the murder. It had seven entries. 1. H.C. 2. Coles Per. 3. Keys. 4. W. Bots. 5. Rags and Tissues. 6. L.I.Q. And 7. F.M. After staring at the list for a few minutes, it began to come together. 1. Handcuffs. 2. Claire's Purse. 3. Keys. 
4. Water bottles 5. Rags and tissues 6. Liquor 7. Face mask 1. Were the handcuffs to lock up Natasha 2. Was a reminder to make sure he also put Claire's purse in the car to make it look like she had taken the car voluntarily 3. Was most likely to remember to bring the keys to the Cadillac with him to the house 4 and 5 were cleanup supplies 6 was the bottle of whiskey to make it look like Claire and Natasha had been drinking and 7 was the face mask that he put over Natasha's head Based on the various dates written on some of the lists, Robert had been planning out the murder for at least seven months. That was just about the time Claire started the divorce process. Robert had convinced her to wait six months, telling her he needed to get a couple of business deals done, and that six months ended August 1st, ten days after he murdered Claire. This was the motive for Robert's crime. He didn't want to lose assets in the divorce. On top of that, the terms of the mortgage insurance on his rental properties said that the death of Claire would result in the insurance company paying off the remaining balance on the mortgages. Claire's death made him own his rental properties free and clear, and we can't forget the $50,000 life insurance policy he had on her. At the trial, after all the evidence and testimonies, including the testimony of Natasha, who recalled exactly what her father had done to her, plus the details about withdrawing cash, fleeing to Las Vegas, and getting plastic surgery under an assumed name, the only way Robert could be innocent of the crime is if there was a massive conspiracy against him involving so many unrelated people. It's completely unbelievable. Once Robert could see that his case was falling apart, he began a steady campaign to disrupt the court. He yelled about how his lawyer didn't represent him and how the court was rigged, after being repeatedly ordered by the judge to stop disrupting the court, the jury was asked to leave and Robert was removed from the trial. He was only brought back in for the reading of the verdict, but continued disrupting the process and the judge ordered him to be restrained and gagged. This is most likely exactly what he wanted. He can say, see, they pulled me from the stand, they wouldn't let me testify, they silenced me. People like Robert Piernock know exactly what they're doing and how to manipulate the situation to support their own lies. At sentencing, Robert continued yelling and screaming, forcing the judge to have him bound and gagged again. The judge sentenced Robert to 22 years for the solicitation of murder, another 22 years for the attempted murder of Natasha, then life imprisonment without the possibility of parole for the murder of Claire, to be served consecutively. While the judge announced his sentence, Robert began slamming his head on the table. The judge also ordered all of the sealed portions of the trial to be unsealed and made public record. That way, anyone could access the proceedings, including appellate courts, and read about the countless accusations made by Robert to anyone who wouldn't do as he ordered. They would also see all of the hard work his lawyer did while enduring serious accusations of corruption and bribery. Everybody would be able to read about the true Robert Piernock. The civil lawsuit against him by Natasha was judged in her favor and he was ordered to pay $11 million in damages. Robert refused to be silenced after the trial. He filed an appeal to his conviction, but it was denied. He also filed a malpractice lawsuit against his lawyer. It was eventually dropped. Robert Piernock was sent to Pelican Bay, which was a high-security prison with minimal social interaction, but he was eventually able to argue that his sleep apnea required him to be in a facility prepared to deal with people with medical conditions. This is honestly why he was sent to Pelican Bay in the first place. He's a con artist who knows how to work the system. He is just as corrupt as the people he claimed to be saving the taxpayers from.
This transfer not only gave him an audience to preach to about the grand conspiracy that had been launched against him, but he also has access to other murderers and a telephone. What if he manages to put together a successful plan to finish off his daughter? This is why she continues to live in hiding. There's no reason to believe he wouldn't, because he truly is one of the worst monsters. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local battered women's shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. The great thing about this website is that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught looking for help. If you're having feelings of harm in yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you might be facing. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. You can subscribe or follow the show to ensure you don't miss an episode, and you can leave us a rating on whatever podcast app you use. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by checking out our merchandise at Teespring. You can also discuss the channel and the episodes on our subreddit, r forward slash thisismonsters. You can find more ways to support our show and how to find us on social media by visiting thisismonsters.com. Thanks again, and be safe. Pop quiz. What can you buy for $3.99? Not a latte, but for less than the cost of a cup of coffee, you can get all your favorite music ad-free. While other streaming services jack up their prices, Live One's membership is only $3.99 per month, and you can lock in that price for a full year. Join now to get the best deal in music with zero ads, unlimited skips, and maximum audio quality. Get the music you love at a price that fits into your budget with Live One Plus. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. Life's full of things we can't depend on, like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for Lucky 7. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on. See CertaIreland.ie this Christmas, feel joy, gift joy, and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22, or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. No. Good boy. Keep your hat on, pet. Why? We're playing dinner at the North Pole, remember? So we need to wear our big warm coats inside. When it comes to food or heat, many families will face impossible choices this Christmas. Please support the St. Vincent de Paul Annual Appeal. Donate locally or at svp.ie. Thank you.